That's that's the right way to play drums. I don't play drums the right way. But I do love, as you know, to play the drums. I love it. As you can probably imagine, it's one of my all-time favorite things to do. It's a great means of expression for me. So if I'm feeling stressed out, I go drum for a while and I feel a lot better. If I'm feeling angry, drum for a while, I feel a lot better. Um, I remember the day that I was given a key to this church building. The church got drums when I was in high school. And I remember the day I got a key to the church building and got permission to come and play them whenever I wanted. That was a big day for me. Um, around the same time I started breaking into the church to play drums, I was also taking violin lessons, which is a little-known fact about me. Um, <laughs> thanks for the, your laughter. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, but I did. I was taking I was taking formal violin lessons and dabbling in drums at at one time. Um, so that's right. You could have ended up with a married pastoral couple that leads worship together with piano and fiddle like a good bluegrass band in Clyde, Alberta. But instead, you're stuck with one actual excellent musician and some guy who bangs things loudly. But how did it come to this? Why did the violin fall to the wayside while the drumming persists? What? The beard. The beard yeah. No, it's quite simple. I have no actual musical abilities. None. And that's not false humility. I literally cannot understand musical theory. Chords, notes, time signatures. I tried to learn it, um, but it remained abstract and ethereal, and I just never got it. I, I have no ear for tuning. As you would know if I was with you singing instead of back here drumming, you would know that I, I don't have an ear for tunes. Um, this became clear to me almost immediately during my violin lessons. I think my instructor assumed a base-level understanding of musical theory that I did not have, at all and so it became really clear the first thing we'd always do was tune my violin and she this poor woman with the patience of a mosquito surgeon she says it's sharp it's it's a little sharp it's still sharp okay a little more you're still sharp okay now it's really really flat you turned it too much it's okay now go back and then too sharp okay no it's flat again and she would be openly wincing the whole time as and I had no idea what she was talking about. I couldn't hear any of it. It all sounded the same to me. I had no idea. But drums, never had that problem. I didn't need to worry about chords or notes or sharps or flats. Instead, I could just find the rhythm and lock into it and bring out the emotion of a song with it, without any of that ridiculous musical theory nonsense. Ridiculous. And that was the big appeal to me. That's what brought me back to drums over and over instead of violin. It wasn't the idea of thrashing around and banging them as loudly as possible. I may give that impression from time to time, but that's not the appeal to me, not being as fast and loud and precise as possible. Rather, it was the idea of locking into a groove, of finding a beat and locking into it and exploring that groove in a way that brings out the best in the music at hand. That's what I love about drums. Drumming is about coordinating the rhythm of the hands and feet. In other words, it's about patterns. Drumming is about patterns. And I guess playing the piano, playing the violin, that there's patterns there too. But drumming is all about rhythm and rhythm is all about pattern. It's extremely satisfying to me to snap into a precise rhythmic loop and, and loop it over and over and over again, as Angie and the girls will tell you as they're listening to me play drums in the basement over and over and over again. But... I love locking into a groove and only breaking out of that groove to explore the, ex- the, the, the expanses of that groove and then f- snapping back into it. That It's very satisfying to me. Those, those outward breaks from the pattern of the rhythm are called fills or rolls. So if you're doing a regular beat and then do-do-do or whatever, 
That's called a fill or a roll. And they don't so much break up the pattern as much as they emphasize the regular pattern through their divergence. The power is in the, the, the pattern and the repetition. That's where the power comes from. The power is in the pattern and the repetition and exploring ways to highlight the pattern by stepping out from it in new ways. So that's my first confession to you. I have no actual musical ability. But I have a second confession. I've already kind of mentioned it. This passage that we're going to study today is intimidating to me. It, it's a bit like um, narrating a Martin Luther King Jr. speech. How do you present such beautiful, transformative perfection in a way that does justice to the original? It's intimidating. I've quoted this passage countless times in other sermons because it's constantly applicable. In my opinion, there's only one other place in all of Paul's writing where Christ is described as powerfully and as beautifully as this, and that's Colossians 1. So it's a it's a bombshell of a passage, and, and no words that I say will begin to do it justice. But we'll still examine it anyway because, A, it's entirely worthy of a full examination. It's actually a two-parter. And B, ultimately, it's just another piece of Paul's larger argument about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, which he says in, in Philippians 1.27. To Paul, this isn't, hey, I'm going to write this earth-shattering poem or quote this earth-shattering hymn. It's just him furthering the argument he's already made. So it, as intimidated as I am by this, the power and beauty of this passage, it's just another passage. And inside this poetic masterpiece, we'll become like drummers. We'll identify the rhythm that God has set forth through Jesus and we'll find a pattern to lock into and explore outward in beautiful ways that bring glory to the one that it teaches about. Um, we're actually going to begin, it says, it said here, starting at verse 5, but we're going to begin our reading in verse 2 since it's intended to flow all together. So read with me verses 2 to 11. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider each other or consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at, the na sorry, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, it, it gets me every time. It, it's such a powerful, beautiful passage, and it's so crucial for our understanding of the nature and character of who Jesus is. And as a bunch of passionate scriptural percussionists, which we're being today, we are up to the task of finding the pattern within the text and then replicating its rhythm in our belief and behavior alike. And the patterns to uncover are threefold. There's three patterns. There is a pattern within the passage itself, as the poetry of verses 5 to 11 act as a response to the instruction in verses 1 to 4, not to mention the instructions that will come after in verses 12 to 18. Right here, there's a pattern where Paul is connecting what he's taught before to Jesus. The second pattern is found within the person of Jesus as communicated by Paul. In other words, there's a pattern to the life and death of Christ Jesus, the servant Lord, that points to the character and nature of God. Everything that Jesus does is a pattern that illustrates who God is. 
Um, we're going to lock into that pattern. And finally, there's a third pattern. It's a mystery pattern. I will save that pattern for next week. So let's look at the first pattern of the, par- the passage. Let's look at how Paul uses verses 5 to 11 to support his message from his previous couple paragraphs. The message began in 127, as I mentioned, where Paul implores his audience in Philippi and Clyde to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, uh, the gospel of Christ. Everything that follows demonstrates behavior that brings glory to Christ, that, that brings honor to the gospel. So he kicks it off with that, and everything that follows is based on that. As we discussed three weeks ago, which was when my last sermon was, the church in Philippi was like a tasty banana split with all the delicious toppings. They were a thriving community that consistently brought glory to God despite much suffering and oppression. However, there is one thing missing. It was the what? The cherry on top. They were missing the cherry on top. As we saw, the cherry that was missing was unity, which Paul drills into them in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, listen to some of these words that are used in verses 1 and 2. Um, united, together, common, like-minded, same, and one. So do you get the impression that he's really trying to drill it into them? All those words basically mean the same, mean the same thing, and that's unity. So you can see the pattern unfolding. To be successful, they must be locked into the groove together. They have to share the same rhythm. And currently they're starting to, one person starting to do a, a different rhythm with this drum and another's doing a different rhythm with this drum. They're beating their own drums, in fact. They're starting to get selfish and vain. And so Paul wants them to lock back into the same rhythm. And this theme continues in the next couple verses. Paul mentions the selfish ambition, the vain conceit, and the self-absorbed attitudes that have begun sneaking into the Philippines' interactions with each other. And he contrasts these to attitudes that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the red, that's what they're starting to exhibit. The green is what Paul wants them to exhibit, what Jesus wants them to exhibit, because that will bring unity. So things like humility, honest self-evaluation, and a compassionate concern for the needs of others. Do those things, and you'll be united. Do the red things that they are beginning to show, and unity will break apart, and they will not be conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that's the context into which Paul inserts the gorgeous poetry of verses 5 to 11. And by the way, there's a scholarly debate about whether or not 6 to 11, or perhaps only 6 to 8, are actually an ancient hymn that Paul is reciting for the Philippians, and if it is, whether or not he is actually the author of this theoretical song of praise. We're, we're not sure. I'm going to skip the debate altogether, as interesting as it is, perhaps. I'm going to skip it because ultimately it's unanswerable. We don't know the answer. And because in the end, it doesn't matter. The poetry of the passage, it doesn't matter who wrote it, where he drew it from, if he wrote it himself, it doesn't matter. The poetry of the passage serves a purpose. What is the purpose? Well, he introduces that purpose in verse 5. Now, the older NIV translation of verse 5 is, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. That's what I read to you. That's what my translation is. It's the older NIV. But that makes it sound like it's separate from everything that came before. It sounds like it's a new thought. But it's not separate. In fact, the newer NIV translations rectified this by rewriting it as, in your relationships with one another, which is what he's just been talking about, unity. So in your relationships to one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This more strongly connects today's passage with the passage that came before it, so it's it's a little better. But the purpose of the whole 
beautiful exploration of Jesus is to demonstrate how his entire existence resembles the life that Paul is urging the Philippians towards. He's using Jesus, in a way, as the ultimate case study, as the ultimate sermon example, if you will, of this mindset, this attitude that he's calling them towards. Verses 6 to 11 demonstrate how the Lord of all creation perfectly exemplified the humble, lowly, self-emptying, giving, servant-hearted character that fosters unity and love and would serve as the cherry on top of the Philippians' already delicious faith. Paul's imploring his friends to guard against selfish attitudes that create disunity, and so he introduces the poem by drawing attention to their shared relationship, unity, and their desired mindset that they are to share together. The ideals of each, of both the mindset and the relational interaction, the ideals of of each of those are perfectly modeled in the life and death of Jesus. So if you want to have unity, you got to have this. And if you want to have this, you got to, you got to emulate Jesus. You got to be like Jesus is what he's saying. The pattern of verses five to 11 is to take the language of verses one to four to its most powerful and beautiful extremes through the example of Jesus. So let's take a closer look at the themes of especially verses six to eight in particular and see how they reflect Paul's earlier message. Verses 6 to 8 have a profound way of highlighting who Jesus is and what he was like. There's, I, I don't know if there's a better, more succinct, more powerful little passage of who Jesus is and what he was like than this in, in all of scripture. It, it's perfect. Um, and it's profound. There, there's a pattern in how he progresses along. Jesus begins as God, but, he continually lowers himself throughout the passage. So he starts as God. He goes from God to willfully unequal to God, then from unequal to God to human, and then from human to slave, and then from slave to subject to death, and then from subject to death to subject to the the most despicable, most cruel, most inhumane, humbling death of all, that is death on a cross. Every step is a deeper descent away from what he deserves, from the glory of who he began as. That's the pattern of verses 6 to 8. Paul takes us deeper and deeper and deeper down into the lowliness and humility and servant-heartedness of Jesus. So that's the pattern. Let's build on it with some runs and fills to flesh it out a little. And flesh it out a little is actually a fitting description for what Jesus did with his divine nature. He put skin on it. He took all that he was at the beginning and, and gave it flesh. He took lowly, pathetic, feeble human skin, in fact, which should be a constantly stunning thought for even us, even the most longest tenured believer in God. This should be continually shocking to us. This should disrupt us every time we hear it, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God in all his glory contained himself in a body not unlike ours, broken, susceptible to pain, and that's who he became. Because Jesus, what Jesus became is not equal to what he deserved, is it, at all? Like, even the first step to be willfully unequal to God is way beyond what he deserves. And that's just the first step. You get all the way to death on a cross, there's no, nobody deserves that. Never mind Jesus deserving that. Or I guess the better way to say it is, we all deserve that. Jesus doesn't. 
Verse 6 begins with Jesus described as being in very nature God. And that's a tricky phrase, and it comes with a tricky Greek word that many over the centuries have misinterpreted. That very nature, being in the very nature of God, that word very nature is the Greek word morphe, which does not sound familiar. It's where the Greek word morph comes from, as in mighty morph and power rangers. That's where the word comes from. The problem is that to morph, in some people's understanding, means to incompletely become something else. People think to morph means to become something but not really be that thing. It suggests merely looking like something without actually being that thing. Some would interpret Jesus being morphe of God, being in the form of God. They would interpret that as he acted like God, but he was not actually God. A similar misunderstanding happens at the end of verse 7 where it says he was made in human likeness. And in verse 8 when it says he was found in appearance as a man. Put it all together, the morphe, the likeness, the appearance, and it sounds like Paul is describing Jesus as something like an actor, either a man who behaved a lot like God but wasn't a God, or else a God who appeared to be human but who wasn't actually truly human. Is that what Paul is suggesting by likeness and appearance and morphe? And this is crucially important because how you understand that shapes how you understand all of Jesus. Was he really a God who pretended to be a human? Was he really a human who pretended to be a God? Was he just appearing to be these things? What is Paul? Is that what Paul is saying? Well, no, obviously not. First of all, the word morphe, which is only used in one other place in the entire New Testament, other than in chapter 2. It's used twice in chapter 2. But that word morphe does not mean to change incompletely, like an actor putting on a new wardrobe. The word morphe, like our anglicized word morph, recognizes that the importance of a thing isn't in its physical form or shape. The importance of a thing is found in its inner qualities and characteristics. So even though Jesus changed his shape, his outward appearance, he kept all the inward qualities characteristic of the Son of God. So if I were to suddenly turn into a hamster right here in front of you and behaved like a hamster, retaining none of my Chris Lance-ish characteristics, you would say that I, or sorry, you wouldn't say that I morphed into a hamster. He would say that I transformed into one. A transformation is a totally and utterly irreversible change from one thing to another. But, in this theoretical situation, if if I changed suddenly to a hamster, but as a hamster still wore button-up old Navy shirts and made bald jokes about myself and cheered for the Oilers and banged my little hamster paws on a snare drum, you would know that I had retained some of my Chris Lance's qualities. Despite my physical form changing, you would still say, oh yeah, That's hamster Chris Lance. Um, You would then say that I morphed into a hamster. I am still me, but in a new rodent form, which for Angie would be grounds for immediate divorce because she hates rodents of all kinds. She would stomp on me if rodent Chris Lance walked through the door. So let's hope that never happens. But that's that's what Paul means by morphe, the very nature of God. It doesn't mean he looked like God. It means that he was in very nature. He he was still absolutely God. It's also what Paul means by human likeness and appearance or appearance as a man. Jesus fully embodied and represented both identities. I think I don't I don't know if I can emphasize that strongly enough that that is crucially important. The word likeness and appearance doesn't mean, eh, he's kind of like this. It means he was that. 
He was indeed fully God, bearing inside of him all the characteristics and traits of his divine nature as being equal with God. If Jesus was in very nature God, then he was in very nature eternal and timeless. He was by very nature supremely powerful, creator of all things in, on, over, and under the earth. He was by very nature filled with justice and wisdom and truth. And more than anything, for the sake of Paul's argument, he shared in his very nature God's limitless capacity for mercy and compassion and grace. He shared God's nature as a loving parent. He shared God's nature as one who gives tirelessly, who shares endlessly, who loves relentlessly. All of that power and privilege that comes with being the creator God was balanced out by all that ridiculous desire to save his creatures through love. So he was all of those at the same time. That's who he was. He was God himself in all the power, all the glory, all the majesty. That's who he was. But it was balanced out by his humility and his desire to serve and love his creatures. But the amazing thing about the divine nature of Jesus is what he did with it. To demonstrate the wild extremity of God's love for humanity, he took on flesh and he became himself human. But more than that, he didn't just become human, he became the lowest form of human. There's Morphe again in verse 7. The lowest form of human. He didn't come as a human king. It's not the pattern of our God. He didn't come as a human warrior. That's not the pattern of our God. Rather, he came as a slave. He didn't just empty himself of all divine power. When he became human, he emptied himself of all human power as well. He retained no power for himself whatsoever, even though we know he retained all of his power. There are two interesting Greek word choices that Paul makes that have confounded interpreters for centuries. They are vivid words like morphe, so I want to share them quickly. The first is in verse 6, where it says literally, um, what does our translation say? who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In the Greek, it's literally har- um, not harpegmon did Christ consider to be equal to God. Not harpegmon did Christ consider to be equal with God. And that Greek word harpegmon is tricky because it usually means robbery, theft. Various forms of that word also mean something like victim or plunder. There's even connotations of sexual assault behind that word, like a rapist seizing and taking advantage of his prey. So it's a harsh, ugly word. And Paul uses it specifically, but strangely. People sometimes struggle to understand how it fits in the context of verse 6. But Harpegmon begins to make sense when you put all those meanings together. Plundering treasure and grabbing victims all have the same idea taking advantage of power to grab a hold of something and use it for your own self-serving purposes. To grab it and take advantage of it. That's what Harpegmon means. But Jesus was not Harpegmon. He did not seize. He refused, in fact, to seize onto all the power that comes with being in very nature God. He refused to take advantage of all that eternal cosmic power for his own selfish benefit. He didn't take advantage of all the power he was he was privy to. He refused to. He didn't use it for self. He was not Harpegmon. He could have, and if he had, he would have deserved to do that, but he refused to. Instead, he made himself nothing, as the NIV says. And that's the Greek word ekinosin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Ekinosin. The root of that word is empty. So a literal translation would be, he emptied himself. He refused to grab onto power and instead emptied himself of that power. Despite being in very nature God, 
he emptied himself of that power and became a powerless slave. Not only did he refuse to grab selfish gain for his own benefit, but he took it several steps further and took on the identity of one whose entire existence is defined by giving selflessly for the benefit of others. So not only did he refuse the power, he fully emptied himself of all power so that his only purpose was to give power to others. He became a slave. He became a servant. And still Jesus took it a few steps further. That wasn't enough. Still he took it further. Not only did he make himself a humble, obedient slave in life, but he even accepted a humble, obedient slave's death on the cross. Paul draws special attention to this. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul draws attention to this. Not only did he selflessly subject himself to death, but even death on a cross. And it's easy for us to skip over the shock and shame of the cross, which Paul highlights here in a special way. No citizen of Rome was ever subjected to, to crucifixion unless they were found guilty of rebellion and, and traitor. Unless they were traitors is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no citizen of Rome could be crucified. The cross was a form of torture left for people that the Romans considered subhuman. So non-citizens of Rome are less than human. We can crucify them. Traitors. Those who rise up against Caesar, less than human, crucify them. The other group of people who was crucified by the thousands was slaves. Slaves who had no status whatsoever. They were crucified all over the place to make examples for other slaves. It was a cruel and brutal extermination left for traitors, prisoners of wars, rebels, and slaves. Slaves like the Son of Man, who was himself not a citizen of Rome, but a citizen of a new kingdom in which he would reign as a new and greater Lord. Today, we worship that Lord in a building festooned with crosses. There's a cross here. Um, there's, I think there's a cross here. No? There's, there's a cross there. There's a giant cross on the side of the building. On our sign, I'm sure there's a cross. In, in my PowerPoints, there's crosses. we got crosses all over the place. The, the communion on the communion plates that's right there's crosses everywhere today we we can't escape the cross if we're in a church that's the mark of our identity in in of who Jesus is and who we are in him we wear crosses around our necks and on our clothing and they hang from our ears but the philippians who who paul writes to would never have done that to them the cross was still a symbol of shame and oppression they wouldn't have erected a giant cross in the houses that they met at because they were still subject to the cross. To them, that was still an object of oppression. It was still a scandalous thing. And our Lord, who was in very nature God, was stapled to one of those things until he bled to death. We are removed from a world where the threat of crucifixion looms over us and our faith. To us, the cross is a symbol of salvation and sacrifice, and rightfully so. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It should be a symbol for us. But Paul includes it here as a rhetorical slap in the face. He mentions the cross because it snaps them into attention. Oh yeah, crucifixion. The passage begins with Jesus Christ as equal to God in every way, but it ends with him humbled and broken, subjecting his servant's body and his Savior's blood to the ultimate cruelty of crucifixion. That's why Paul has even death on a cross. That is as low as you could get in the Roman world. If you were hung on a cross, you literally hung there till the birds of the air pecked you apart. 
You were often not even taken down from the cross. You were left up there. There was so much shame, so much indignity connected with, with crucifixion. And Paul draws his, the Philippians' attention to that to say, he started out here and look where he ended up. That's how humbled he became. That's how much of a servant, that's how obedient, that's how selfless he was. He ends it with the crucifixion. Except no, he doesn't end it with the crucifixion. Verse 9 begins with a therefore, and it is a therefore of triumph and victory and glory. The pattern reverses itself. First it was a descent, but then immediately, shockingly, he's right back up where he belongs. Jesus was God, became a slave, and now reigns supreme once again. Jesus humbly and obediently made himself lowly, but God exalted him, raising him up above all people. Jesus started out in heaven, went to earth, and, and was buried underneath it. But now, all creatures in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will proclaim his glory. Both his own people and the oppressing Romans forced Jesus to his knees. They beat him and bled him and crucified him. But a day is coming when those same enemies, even the false savior, Caesar himself, and any other lord we can put in his place, a day is coming when all those same enemies will one day be forced to confess that he is their king. And by the way, excuse me, when Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, that's not a willful bow. He is quoting a passage from Isaiah where all the, t- and all the nations of the earth will come to the Messiah and whether they like it or not, they will bow. That's not a, this, Paul's not saying one day everyone will be praising God and everyone in heaven all, will all be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you deny him here, go ahead. But a day is coming when you will be forced to reckon with his power and his authority and you will have no choice. It's, it's a brutal thing. It's not unity of all people who have ever died. There's still a separation here. I just need to make that clear. And so the pattern continues to reverse itself. Jesus started out as equal to God, let go of that equality, and as a result, God granted him divine equality once again. Every pattern comes full circle, and God has given the glory he deserves through the son that he raised up to life and glory. The beat goes on and on and on and on and on, a holy rhythm that will have no end into eternity. In some ways, Verses 9 to 11 is a completion of the pattern. But when it comes to Paul's purposes of connecting 5 to 11 to 1 to 4, it's a total break from the pattern, completely. It's like a long and elaborate drum fill that once again serves to snap the pattern of the original back into focus. Everything prior to this poetry is focused on drawing the Philippians together in unity, selflessness, and humility. Verses 5 to 8 of the poem emphasize these things as well from the life of Jesus. But now we're talking about glory, an exaltation would happen to humility and slave-like obedience. It's a break from the pattern. But really, I think it's an emphasis of the same pattern. I think it accomplishes two things. It shows that God validates this whole pattern, that God is over and above this whole thing, that God has the entire musical arrangement of all human history in mind. He's combining multiple rhythmic patterns together to form one perfect ensemble. He's in control, is what I'm saying. God is in control. He's validating. If God, Jesus can do this and be glorified, then guess what? If you are unified and if you are strong 
And if you subject yourself to this, if you refuse to give up on the name of Jesus, you too have this to look forward to. Glory and exaltation. He reminds the oppressed Philippians of the rewards for staying locked into the groove of enduring their suffering and remaining united in love and service. God's pattern is this. Faithfully enduring hardships for his name in life leads to the promise of victory in the next life. There's a larger rhythm at work when we can't always see it because we're so wrapped up in this life. But this initial existence is really just the, you know how drummers often start a song with click, 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 click. That's all this life is. It's that. And then the rest of the rhythm plays out. Then the song happens. But all this is is just just that. We're just clicking along. It's not really much of anything at all. It's setting the stage for the glory to come. It's a beat that will go long ap- go on long after we, like our Lord Jesus, taste the sting of death. But, as Paul will declare in the following verses, if we are, o- are obedient, we will be victorious. Jesus laid the foundation for that pattern. If we are obedient, we will be victorious. And so, and now I'm summing up, so we're almost done. It's really warm in here. I feel it too. <laughs> but to sum up, Philippians 2 is about examining the patterns of sacrifice, selflessness, and submission that Jesus exemplified perfectly. Philippians 2 is also about how that pattern must be transferable transferable to his followers if his followers are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus set the pattern. We need to take up this pattern if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel. The Philippians lacked unity because they're getting wrapped up in the pattern of proud ambition and empty vanity and selfish interests. They get wrapped up in the patterns of the world. But Jesus offers a new pattern. His entire existence was about laying down his rights, giving selflessly, and emptying himself of power in order to make his Father's love clear to everyone he encountered. That selfless, humble love led directly to the cross and found its fulfillment at the cross and the resurrection that happened after the cross. But the cross leads to glory and supreme authority. So here's what we know from Philippians 2 about Jesus. Jesus is not a king who grasps Harpegmon. He is not a king who grabs, who takes advantage of. Rather, he's a king who gives. He's not a king who forces service. He's a king who faithfully serves. He's not a king who dominates to demonstrate power. He's a king who dies to demonstrate power. And if that's the pattern he's established, then it's a pattern that his people had better take to heart as well. And that, that's the mystery pattern that I talked about for next week. That's the third, probably the most important pattern, is we will take this last sentence. How can we as his people pick up our sticks and follow the groove that he's laid down? How can we as his people emulate the pattern that he's established? It's this pattern of modeling our behavior after Jesus that we'll focus on next week. We'll see how we as his people can step into the rhythm of faithful service and branch out from the pattern of Western society in order to bring him glory. I'm sorry I'm leaving you without any practical take-home, anything, really, but A, you are very intelligent because I didn't need anybody to read to me, here's the things you need to do now, and I can just read it and get it, and I know you're as intelligent or more so than me, usually more so, so you don't need me to specify for you. And B, Next week, it will be all practical, just in case you're not intelligent enough to figure it out. Just in, just in case. I'm kidding. I just really wanted to give this passage the background it deserved. Because to me, it's super powerful. 
So now with this background of what it's saying about who Jesus is and the pattern of life that he lived, now next week we can say, well, how can we step into that pattern as well? But this morning is not merely about setting the stage. This morning is all about acknowledging Jesus' pattern of selflessness, humility, and sacrifice, and how those things perfectly demonstrate the nature and character of God. As the Philippians learned, we cannot bring glory to God if we are not united in selfless service. And we cannot be united in selfless service unless we have the same attitude as our Lord Jesus. And what is the pattern of Jesus' attitude? Well, the pattern is giving, loving, and serving selflessly, rather than taking, forcing, and clinging to selfish interests. Jesus set the pattern for us to follow. You don't need to know a bunch of fancy theory to make a joyful, beautiful sound in his kingdom. You just need to be locked into a Christ-like groove of sacrifice, humility, and selfless love, following the rhythm established by our risen Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the pattern that you demonstrated, that in lowliness and humility and service, there is power and there is glory and there is victory. And so I pray that we would be a people who step into this pattern and demonstrate this pattern to the world around us. Help us to be people who give rather than take, who um, look out for others' interests rather than our own. Help us to be selfless and humble and gracious. Help us to take up this pattern that you laid down for us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are able to humble us to do these things. You are able to fill in our minds the same attitude and fill in our hearts the same behavior. So I pray that you would do that for us. And in all things, all of this service, all of this humility, all of this glory is for you, God. We do it for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You would still say, oh yeah, that's Hamster Chris Lance. <laughs>